I have found that a lot of founders are confused about the way equity works in startups and how to track ownership in cap tables. And that's not too surprising because it's really extremely different to the way regular stock markets work. So today I want to give you an overview of how capitalization and equity ownership works in startups so that you can talk intelligently to your lawyers, investors, co-founders, and new hires. But the most important piece of advice I'll give right now, always make sure to get everything you do reviewed by a lawyer. Mistakes on your cap table are some of the worst you can possibly make and go bad in terrible ways. Greetings, founders. Welcome to Feel the Boot, the science of startups. I'm your host, Lance Cottrell, and I'm here to help you along the arduous journey of launching your startup and help you climb the vertical learning curve that you're going to encounter along the way. I know I've been there myself and I have helped countless other founders along their journeys. So let's start with the big picture. Stock represents ownership in a company. So each share of stock is one small slice of the pie of the whole company. Now, unlike normal stock, when you're buying and selling on the stock market, you're typically not trading with another person who owns it. Rather, you're creating stock from nothing and the company's selling that stock to the investors. And often you're creating different flavors of stock that's called series. So you'll have series seed, series A, series B. So each time you do an investment round, you typically will create a new kind of stock, each one of which needs to be tracked separately. The only stock that exists at the very beginning and is created when your business is incorporated is the common stock. Now, when you're thinking about your company's stock, any given share can exist in sort of three different states, authorized, issued, outstanding, and reserved. So the authorized stock is the amount of stock, the number of shares of each type that the company is authorized to issue, the maximum it can possibly hand out. That's actually written down in the Articles of Incorporation. And when you want to issue more stock than is authorized, you're actually amending the Articles of Incorporation to allow you to create that new stock. The next category is issued stock. So of the shares that you are authorized to issue, you may not have in fact handed out all of them. So the number that you've issued is the number that are owned by someone, either an investor, an employee, you, or indeed even the company if the company has done a stock buyback. Outstanding is all the stock owned by people who aren't the company itself. So all the stock you've issued to anyone except the stock that the company itself owns because of a buyback. And finally, there's reserved shares. These are shares that have not been given to anyone, but they're being held back in a kind of almost escrow account against some future obligation. The most common of these is your options pool. You have, author you have the ability, rather, to issue all of these options. And at any point, any employee could exercise their options and turn it into stock. And you need to guarantee that stock exists. And so an options pool or other reserved pool of stock makes sure that the shares are there when called on. The differences between common and preferred stock really deserve their entire own episode. 
But in the context of this episode, I wanted to give just a Cliff Notes version explaining the difference between them. So common stock is typically most of the shares that you're going to issue. It is the kind of shares that you're trading on the stock exchanges primarily. It has no liquidation preferences and no other special voting rights. It's the vanilla kind of stock. But when you start bringing in investors, they're looking for some protection of their investment and they will negotiate other special terms for their series of stock. And these terms may vary in each series you release. So the people who bought in on your seed round will negotiate one set of things, but maybe you're over a barrel a little bit when you're doing your A round, they're able to extract more concessions from you. And then let's say you're really killing it when you get to your B round and therefore you have to give away fewer rights to them. The biggest difference between common and preferred shares is the preference. And this is an amount of money paid back to the shareholders before anyone else gets paid. And this comes in two flavors. So there's participating preferred and non-participating preferred. And typically it's expressed as a multiple of the initial investment. So most commonly you'll see one times preferred stock, but sometimes you'll see two or three. And what that means is how many times the investors initial investment they get back before you start distributing money to everyone else. Now, participating preferred, when your company is sold or acquired, liquidated in some way, the participating preferred get their preference back, their initial investment, twice their investment, three times their investment, and then they get to convert into common stock and get all of their fair share of the common stock based on how many shares they convert into. Whereas non-participating stock gives them a choice. They can either take their preference, some multiple of their investment, or they can turn into common stock and participate along with everyone else. And that's much more fair because it's a little bit of double dipping when you have fully participating preferred stock. So try to avoid that if you at all can. In general, with non-participating preferred, the investor will only take that option if bad things have happened. The company's getting sold at a fire sale, the value is down from where the person came in, in which case all of the proceeds are going to go to the preferred holders, leaving basically nothing on the table for the common stock. But that's the way the cookie crumbles in a bad outcome. In the US, most investors demand preferred shares because they want that extra level of protection and to be able to recoup some of their losses if things go bad. But that's not universal. And in other countries, for example, the UK, there are tax incentives that make it very strongly preferred to get common stock in pre-seed rounds. Uh, because the government's given out all kinds of interesting incentives. So what kind of stock and what kind of terms may vary depending on your local laws and tax codes. Now one term that you're likely to run into as soon as you start working with investors is the term fully diluted shares. And that's often the number that's used to calculate the per share price of your company. And all it means is the number of shares that you would have outstanding if everyone exercised all of the contingencies they have. So the board issued every option in your options pool and then every employee exercised all of those options and every warrant holder exercised their warrants, right? Every possible bit of potential stock gets turned into real stock and that gets counted up. And that's the 
fully diluted number of shares, the maximum number that could happen in a foreseeable outcome. Interestingly, it doesn't include things like safes or convertible notes because you don't actually know how many those would turn into. Right? Those don't actually turn into a fixed number of shares until there's a conversion event and you know what the next investment is, what that per share price is, and then that locks the actual number of shares being given out. So those are things that are important to track alongside the cap table, maybe in a different section of the cap table. They don't go in the main section of shares, but still it's important information for an investor or even a new hire to be able to see, to understand the context of the rest of the cap table. I wanna pause for a moment here in the middle of the episode and ask you for a favor. If you're enjoying this episode, please give it a like. It tells YouTube that this is the kind of content you want to see more of. If you've watched a number of these episodes, I'd like you to subscribe and ring that bell so you get updated every single time new content comes out. It makes an enormous difference to the channel. While you're at it, leave a comment. Let me know what other kinds of content you'd like to see covered in this channel. Thanks. Another thing that you need to be tracking alongside your cap table, but not actually on the cap table itself, is your option grants. As soon as you start handing out stock options to your employees, you need to be recording who received them, how many options did they get, what date were they issued on, what's the strike price of those options, what's the vesting schedule for those options, and what is the expiration date of those options. Very important to always have all of that information on hand, up to date and accurate. Now, keeping track of all this and doing it correctly can get pretty complicated. There's a lot of spreadsheet templates out there that you can download, but I don't recommend them. You should use an online tool to track your cap table. It takes care of all the calculations and make sure that you don't accidentally fat finger something into the tool or mis-enter mis one of the formulas or some mistake like that. I'm not gonna give a specific recommendation because tools are evolving and new ones appearing all the time. So you're gonna to wanna to do some quick searching to look for uh, and choose a good, reliable cap table management solution. There are lots of good ones out there. And it's really important to get this right. You need to have all of this information tracked and accurate. And you need to make sure that you're kept up on your record keeping, including the contracts. But you need to quickly be able to land, lay hands on every single shareholder agreement and uh, subscription agreement, option grant, board uh, vote to issue those grants, shareholder votes to authorize shares. All of that needs to be easy at hand for due diligence and to uh, settle any disputes that may arise. Because when disputes arise over the percentage ownership of the company, it is really, really nasty. And if there's any sort of question marks around that ownership, it will scare off your investors. They will run for a mile at the first whiff of hinkiness in your cap table. So make sure that is super buttoned up. Also, even with a tool, make sure you're getting everything double-checked by a lawyer. Having that second pair of eyes can really help with the accuracy of what you're doing, plus it demonstrates good faith and best efforts in trying to maintain accurate records. Let's examine what your cap table looks like at a couple of different points in the evolution of your company, starting with right after you actually incorporate it. This is the simplest your cap table will ever be. Fundamentally, there's only gonna be an entry for each one of the founders with your respective number of shares. 
as you can see here, what we've done is authorized 10 million shares. So when we created the company, we wrote into the Articles of Incorporation, we can issue up to 10 million shares total. But at the moment, we've only issued 5 million shares of common stock. 3 million went to the first founder and 2 million went to the co-founder because that's what they agreed on. Right? All of this is arbitrary. You can pick any numbers you want. But now you've got the ownership. One of them owns 60%, the other owns 40%. That represents everything. All the rest of the stock is unissued. Now, let's fast forward, let's say, a year. And you've made some progress, you've hired some employees, and you've brought in some early angel investors. And those angels have invested through a convertible note. They could have easily done so with a safe as well. And you have also hired some employees. So you created a options pool and have issued some options out of it. So now you have issued 6 million shares of common stock because you created a 1 million share option pool. Yeah, just out of thin air. The board and the shareholders authorized doing that. And so far, you've granted 400,000 options to your early hires. And then these two angels have brought in some cash. One of them invested, say, $100,000 and the other $50,000. There's going to be some interest rate uh, and they've got a cap. This is going to be capped at a $5 million valuation. So they're never going to convert at worse than $5 million. Uh, but they will all, if the next person came in low, they would be converting at, say, a 20% discount to whatever that person gets. So the main cap table shows the actual shares issued and then alongside that, you have another table showing the investors in these convertible instruments so that the next person who comes along can sort of see where all the ownership is going to go, even though those people don't have shares yet. A year later, you've closed your A round. So now you have a VC on the cap table who's negotiated a deal for your first series of stock. In this case, your series A, although it could easily have been series C. The names don't actually mean anything. In the process, both of the earlier angel investors have converted and they also get that Series A stock. So now you have two kinds of stock. And in the process of this, your shareholders have authorized the creation of this pool of Series A stock. And so let's say they've authorized a million and a half shares, but in fact, you're only issuing a million 380 some uh, out to those shareholders. You've now issued some more options. So maybe you've got 600,000 options out to your employees. So your pool's now down to 400. And in fact, that might be getting a little small. Your uh, Series A investors might have requested that you increase the size of your option pool by this time. But for this simple example, we're gonna ignore that complexity. All of those convertible notes have converted, so we no longer have that section on the table, although you're likely to be bringing in some sort of bridge round in the near future, and so those will show up on the side again at that point. And each time you issue a new series, you'll get a new column here of a new kind of stock. And when we're looking at the ownership, again, that's always calculated against the fully diluted number. So that's all the issued shares of common stock, the entire options pool, granted and not granted, and all of the Series A shares. All of that gets added together. Typically for simplicity, 
your preferred stock and your common stock are one-to-one. -one. They vote with the same power and they convert into each other at one-to-one. -one. There are times if there's stock splits or someone had a anti-dilution provisions, it can change that. That'll make the cap table messier, but still fundamentally there is some ratio. And when you're talking about fully diluted shares, it's always as if everything converted to common and we just count up all the common shares. Now, all of this was really just a very high level overview of how equity and cap tables work in startups. Just enough to help you be able to speak intelligently to investors, lawyers, employees, co-founders, and everyone else who's gonna be concerned about how the pie of your company is get, getting divided up. Now, my advice still stands. I strongly encourage you to go out and use a tool to actually track all of this. Be diligent in keeping up to date and maintaining all of the documentation of every single change made in any way to any of these cap table documents and have your lawyer review it. I just can't jump up and down about that enough. It is disastrous if there's a fight over your cap table. Thanks for watching this episode. I hope you found it useful and interesting. And if you did, do the usual. Like, subscribe, ring the bell, leave a comment, both with what other topics you'd like to see me cover, but also if there's anything I missed or you found confusing, please ask. I'll be sure to leave a answer in the comments with a full explanation of whatever it is that you didn't understand. And if it's meaty enough, I'll create a follow-up video to this one answering that specific question, and you'll see a card up there when that happens. This episode is part of the Founder Insights playlist. You can, again, go up to the card there to see all the other episodes in this series. I've got series of episodes on a number of topics, getting started in your startup, fundraising, pitch decks, uh, running the business, Founder Insights and knowledge that you need to have, and interviews with experienced uh, angels, VCs, and founders. And that's all on the channel. Again, pop the card up there so you can reach that. If you want to get one-on-one -on -one coaching and individual answers to individual problems, I encourage you to go to feeltheboot.com, sign up for our mailing list in every single issue of Bootprints, our newsletter. I include a link where you can get on my calendar for one-on-one -on -one coaching completely free. I have a whole coaching regime that I have out there and I'll put a link to a video I did explaining exactly how I work with founders. I also encourage you to go to the Feel the Boot Founders Alliance, which allows you to meet other founders for networking, support, collaboration, and all kinds of other purposes. Until next time, ciao.